build a $4 machine using uh, very cheap parts, but the, it's uh, Wi-Fi enabled and the key component is voice recognition. So all your navigation, commands, uh, uh, machine learning interactions with the AI uh, is done through voice. So you don't, you're not tapping uh, or uh, trying to communicate with gestures and stuff. You're, you're just doing uh, voice commands like you would uh, talking to someone like an assistant. That's right. Yep. No, I'll definitely love to check it out. Okay. Yeah. I think it's uh, really interesting because um, one of the aspects about voice is that that's the natural way we communicate. Yep. And so we're, we expect when we communicate to a device uh, that it will respond to what we're saying. Kind of reminds me of that Star Trek episode uh, movie where Scotty's talking to the computer and he goes, computer. And, he, and the computer's, uh, I think it was an Apple IIe or, or IBM PC Jr. Uh, and he couldn't understand why the machine wasn't talking back to him. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You are totally right. I mean, uh, voice is not only intuitive for humans to communicate with any of the, the computer-based systems. It's also actually much more efficient in terms of uh, the productivity as well. So according to one statistics, uh, people can just type, even the, the pro typewriters, they can write uh, 30 to 40 words per minute. But when you're talking, you can go up to 180 to 200 words per minute. So you can give those many commands. So five times more uh, commands to uh, any given system through voice as opposed to typing or touch-based systems. One of the things that I've noticed uh, when I've talked to people about natural language processing is we always are talking about coding and uh, decoding uh, from uh, either using a, uh, a reoccurring neural net or some sort of uh, translation device. But you notice like when we talk, we condense a lot of what we're saying due to our experience, uh, concepts that we have in our brain, uh, levels of abstraction we want to communicate quickly. How do you get it so that the machine uh, understands context? Uh, I think we are a little bit farther from there. The whole research community is trying to crack, just like pretty much the, the artificial general intelligence, AGI. So humans understand the context uh, pretty well. So the, if you remember the why those CAPTCHA uh, human detection systems were born in the first place is some very, very simple problems for humans. They're extremely complex for machines. So context is one such thing, or even the slang, or when you are actually within a group of people, you talk one way versus we are, you are when you are in between colleagues or family members, you talk other way. So same word might mean different things based on different contexts. So that's, that's actually a fairly complex problem, in my opinion. Well, one, one of the uh, ideas that I've been uh, thinking about is, uh, like I, I lead, read uh, the Bible, mm -hmm. um, Christian and I read the writings of Paul, and one thing I found is that Paul speaks very logically. And so I took some of his writings and converted it into propositional logic, where you have uh, declarative statements, and they're either true or false, and then you have implications, and then you have not, and, and or cases. And I found that it was a lot easier to find the context that I started thinking, well, I'm wondering in our brain, if we do something similar, we create uh, logical propositional uh, statements 
and then we create links to other uh, logical items and perhaps even create and synthesize new rules uh, that we might consider to be high-level concepts. And so when you actually say a set sentence, it's uh, putting together a whole series of, of uh, declarative statements. And then in the neural net, uh, when we try to draw conclusions, uh, it's then using possibly these higher-level propositions so that we can understand meaning. Yep, yep, exactly. I mean, so there is like a local context and there is a whole historical uh, cognitive intelligence behind it. So base level is obviously parsing the structure in front of you, uh, the fundamentals of a sentence and sentence blocks. But once the system is able to understand that, uh, applying the cognitive AI on top of it, it's very cr crucial, very critical. And that is composed of the entire like life's history uh, all the past learning, the context. I mean, it's a very rich set of context. So how to logically apply the rules and how to weigh it differently? Is it like we cannot just use time-based weighing. Sometimes like old memories should overtake the new ones and sometimes the new memories should overtake the old ones. So what is the ideal weight factor to kind of weigh across this different set of memories and learnings across a period of time and how to utilize in deciphering the sentence at hand. I think those are like very interesting uh, and challenging uh, research issues. So do you, do you prescribe to more of the K-line uh, approach to language understanding or do you attempt to do more semantic networks where you're taking words and then you're looking at related words like a thoris and, uh, and just trying to parse sentences or actually, are you actually trying to uh, build uh, artificial thought. So right now my focus area is not like uh, more of a, the research subject of doing this broad-based uh, speech processing. We are focusing more on the very specific subject of uh, how to interact with a device. So that context is actually very, very small. The, okay. the, the domain itself is very small. And when you are talking about the, the $4 computer, yes, in a small set, in a non- cloud-connected manner, you can put all that intelligence on a Raspberry Pi Zero or equivalent kind of power. But when you really want to go beyond a small subset of domain-specific language, uh, that's why uh, Amazon and Google and a bunch of other companies, they have the whole cloud-based backends to have this vast knowledge, more generalized level. You can ask those uh, smart speakers to uh, set the alarms and schedules and ask them about recipes and ask them about tidbits and facts like Siri. So there are lots and lots of questions you can ask and interact with these general purpose systems. And for that, uh, significant computing resources are needed. So depending on the problem at hand, uh, one can use completely local native uh, command and control using voice. And there you, that you can run on a very small scale hardware, but with a limited domain. And if you want to go on a generic domain, then obviously you need a much bigger set of cloud-based powerful systems to run those things. So that's the balance we have to kind of play in between. Well, it's interesting because uh, uh, information theory states that, uh, uh, that language can be converted into a series of symbols and therefore uh, all language can be encoded and decoded so um, then it would be a matter of just how uh, advanced those networks would be in the in the decoding 
say like if I was talking in English uh, and then you wanted to, to convert to Hindi. Uh, and then in this, let's say we have a, a hardware device that you want to have the same response in Hindi as you do in English. Um, so we have then which called binary. And so yeah, at the low level, you have binary controlling your hardware. Um, and since uh, binary can be represented through differential equations as ones and zeros, then it means that uh, information theory would apply to binary. And so all language then should be able to be converted to binary and uh, be capable to uh, communicating with hardware devices. Is that kind of what you see? Uh, yes and no. Actually, one of my uh, friend's friends, like back in the days, almost like 20 years back, he had done a very interesting research, and uh, I've seen it firsthand. So all those languages, uh, they have uh, grammatical rules and certain things. Some languages are very, very loosely defined, and English is not a well-structured language for that. So for computer learning, English is unfortunately not a very well-defined, uh, grammatically accurate language. Sometimes it's like a lot of context around like whether to uh, certain letter syllable is silent or not silent, and it appears that it's, uh, it's random at times, and it's based on the, the preset de facto rules. So one of my friend's friend was doing a research some 20 years back on this linguistic programming, neuro-linguistic programming, and what they discovered is uh, uh, one of the origin of Indian languages. India has like some uh, 18 plus first class languages spoken by more number of people uh, than the population of United States, each one of them. Uh, so all of them, most of them have basis as Sanskrit as the language. And uh, what they discovered is the only grammar in the world which, is, which has not changed which has not broken any rules is of Sanskrit language. So it has like very, very strict rules of the grammar and they are exactly observed uh, in any given context, any given situation. So the, the, the positive aspect of that is it can be easily algorithmized, right? So for machines, it's easier to understand this rule-based, highly structured language as opposed to some fuzzy and some exceptions uh, here and there. So what they were doing is instead of doing binary based as the binary as the common language for the machines, what they were saying is uh, if you want to translate, say, Japanese to Spanish, uh, instead of doing it directly, if you go Japanese to Sanskrit and then Sanskrit to Spanish, the translation is much more efficient, much more accurate and much more contextual than if you even if you wow. go directly or if you go via binary route. So. And uh, that the, well, the grammar of uh, Sanskrit has not changed in like, it is like exactly same as it was 10,000 years back. So one of the oldest languages in the world. So actually that's, it's pretty fascinating. It's, uh, yeah, that is very fascinating. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, well, I'm LDS. And so one of the uh, scripture pieces that was translated was from uh Egyptian hieroglyphics to English. That was the first translation. And uh, so the original plates were like uh, uh, the, translated to 522 uh, pages in English, but the original plates was only one third were translated. And, uh, and it was written in a uh, Hebrew Egyptian hieroglyphics. So when I look at this propositional logic, I start thinking, I'm wondering, you know, like you're saying, if there's maybe a universal language 
that uh, could be an interim between uh, binary and that symbolic language that we call English. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it, uh, it depends on not only the grammar part, but the richness of the language as well. Like how do you minimize, for example, uh, Chinese language, right? I mean, they have symbols to represent like various full-fledged sentences or scenarios, right? So it's a very, very richly expressive language. You can tell a lot with very small set of symbols. So hieroglyphics falls in, in that category. And same thing applies to even Sanskrit as well. So just as an example, uh, water, very simple word commonly found, right? So how many words to describe water? So Sanskrit has at least 80, 80 known words to describe water in different situations. So water in river can be called by one name. Water in the ocean can be called by other name. And water in a pot can be called and rainwater can be called by other name. Even though everything is water, you can actually add a lot more context in the same world because of the richness of a given language. So that's also a very, very interesting part. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Indian hieroglyphs, they thought, uh, pictographs, they thought that was just uh, Indian art. And uh, they translated a man in uni- University U- or in Utah realized that uh, the key was in sign language because he, he translated uh, a symbol that meant uh, that there was a flash flood area. And then they, he realized that the Indian group, uh, I think there was a Utes or Paiute that he was studying, could translate that with hand signal. And so they found that there was a universal language among the Indians uh, by sign language that they shared universally that the, um, I think it was the, the chiefs knew this hand language. So uh, they were a common universal language. And uh, it's kind of like what you're talking about here, this universal language, Sanskrit. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, uh, the sign language evolved much way before then all this voice-based languages actually came into existence, right? Originally, human beings were communicating through sign languages, and that is universal even today. Even if I don't know certain language, if I'm putting my hand to my mouth and, like, then my tummy, uh, I'm symbolizing yeah, I right, that hungry. I'm hungry, right? So anybody in the world can at least make out from my facial gestures, and this one is like, hey, this guy is hungry. A poor guy needs some food, right? So sign language has been universal for millennia. Uh, but even when this verbal level of communications evolved, uh, there also there were different levels. Though. So the, the verbal part obviously came first. Only then the return part uh, was there. So uh, another interesting set of studies in schools today when we teach actually kids, it's the other way around. So we start making them write about like alphabets and A and B and C and then make them recognize visually and then we make them speak and all that. But the the actual learning happens the other way around. Within the home, within the household, they start speaking those simple words in their mother tongue, whatever that is. They start speaking way before they start writing. So speech, speech is really a precursor to any written literature. Uh, of the world in, in any culture, in, in any civilization that way. And it's interesting because uh, uh, one of the thoughts that I had is um, when babies first start uh, to move or pick up objects, that's actually a form of communication. They're especially uh, understanding how this object's relating to them. They taste it, they touch it, they uh, play with it, 
Um, and then through that spatial orientation, then they start uh, associating uh, those objects with a word. The word actually now starting to have meaning to a specific object. Then there's relations with that object. Put the, the toy down, rattle the toy, makes the baby giggle, um, things like that. Uh, how do IoT devices start to learn about the world around them? I mean, for IoT devices, it's a, it's a much simpler problem. Uh, at the complexity side, they are extremely primitive uh, compared to even like a newborn child, right? I mean, human brains are so complex and so rich. Uh, the IoT devices uh, on the other side, they are very, very small. And sometimes they are like really dumb sensors and actuators. So they are typically purpose-built for one functions or a very, very small set of functions. So for them, this like generic level of learning or understanding, it's not even the problem space. For IoT devices, it's a very, very structured set of commands. Uh, just like as you were saying, do this, don't do this, put that toy down. So a fixed set of command and fixed set of combinations of those commands, that's all they need to understand and learn. So there is no linguistic learning as of now for IoT devices for multiple reasons because of their low processing power, memory capabilities, the physical power requirement and all that. But also it's, it's not needed uh, in the scope of work itself, the problem scope itself, it's not required. They are purpose-built machines for a specific or set of purposes. And as long as you can indicate those purposes somehow, like press of a button, language is not needed, or press of a flip of a switch, language is not even needed for that matter. It's just like a flow of the current that does the job. Yeah, and I see that uh, you're probably aware of the market potential for IoT. Uh, I think it was Verizon that was the first to come out and uh, say that uh, they're building a platform for the IoT devices. Amazon built their platform, Azure built their platform. Um, and they, they were saying basically that this is a $17 trillion market. So if you, you know, you consider what the GDP is, uh, maybe say $14 trillion, you know, you're talking uh, over one, uh, one GDP in terms of market potential. So uh, we're talking billions of devices out there, like you were saying, very specific, very function. Uh, and then, with this voice, uh, you're adding a higher level uh, interactions, possibly with some AI, where the AI now is uh, going out and, and uh, AI, AI agents are going out and talking to the IoT devices, gathering information or, or making decisions. Yep, from, yep, absolutely. Uh, information is gathered. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally. And like slight correction there, I was part of the group uh, at Cisco, uh, corporate strategy team, which actually gave the whole IoT term to the world. Uh, in fact, it was Internet of Everything, IOE, before uh, the world settled down on the term IoT. And the, the wow. estimate was $19 trillion, not $17 trillion. So it's pretty huge. And even before end of 2020, uh, more than 50 billion connected devices are going to be there. And that number, actually 2007 or 2009, I forgot the exact one, that's the first time Actually, number of connected devices surpassed the human population in the world. So it already crossed the mark, 7 billion mark, uh, back in like uh, 10 years back, almost 10 to 12 years back. And it's accelerating and exponentially growing ever since. So for us, it's like it's a three-tier model, uh, simply speaking. So baseline tier is 
uh, IoT, IoT and the connected devices. So uh, the world so far uh, in the previous generations, it has been disconnected. So security by obscurity and uh, lack of access as a way of uh, enforcing security. Those were the, the kind of norms back in the days. But the world is increasingly becoming connected in this IoT generation. So offering connectivity uh, to sensors and actuators, that's like level one uh, by means of whatever platform. And there are more than 100 plus platforms in the world today uh, claiming to be the IoT platform. But that's a separate story. But connectivity is level one. Then on top of that, what we are planning to do is add voice as additional command and control. Uh, more of a productive and not only productive, it's actually cognitively more efficient mechanism as we were discussing earlier. Uh, for any touch-based systems, you need to use your hand and eye coordination. So you need two senses actively engaged versus if you're using voice, you need to just have only one sense actively engaged uh, on your brain. So it's like 100% more cognitively efficient for the brain. So using voice as that efficient and very effective command and control mechanism as uh, the next layer on top of connectivity for IoT. And the third layer, as you rightly said, is artificial intelligence based, like all the natural language processing, so chatbots, uh, voice bots, and more of a higher level abstractions, which know the patterns, which knows the heuristics and habits and behaviors, and they can automatically make things happen for the end user, giving additional level of convenience and comfort. So. IoT is a very, very fascinating domain uh, for, from all those three aspects. Well, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to listen to my podcast on Robot Brain, but I'd recommend you do that. Um, and originally I was thinking about how uh, the IoT uh, would uh, be in a form of a master slave. So you have... Uh, the slave portion, which would be your IoT devices, they're, they're kind of very high-specific, high-functionality. They do certain things, gather certain information, transmit that information through JSON to the master. The master piece picks it up, uh, processes the frame of data, and then, like a routing mechanism, sends it to different algorithms for processing um, in a pipeline. So we still saw some beginnings of this type of architecture with a bus uh, or message bus where it's an asynchronous uh, system where it's processing data frames. Um, if it, if it goes down communication breaks, it's okay. Just it will pick up those data frames and process them when they, when it, uh, resources become available. Uh, our brains don't really work that way. Everything in our brain works semi real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have data, you know, when we have data frames come in, uh, we, we process that in some portion of our brain. Uh, the neural nets then communicate and associate. Sometimes we have to go into a different brain state, which is, uh, you know, we sleep. And uh, at that point, it's kind of interesting because it's now generalizing. Our brain is generalizing all this specific data, drawing new rules, new conclusions. Uh, we wake up and we say, oh, well, that was sure easy. I had to an easy solution to walk straight in and you have a direct answer. Uh, that's, that's due to the fact that, you know, maybe there's this uh, convergence that occurred, something uh, that couldn't happen in real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no, that's, that's but, uh, very, very interesting observations. Absolutely. And 
Uh, other thing, like when you're saying about master-slave, uh, I had an interesting conversation with a friend uh, some time back. Even though we humans think like, okay, we are the master and the machine is the slave, uh, for quite some time, the role has been <laughs> even already. I mean, even though forget about the, the attack of the AI and all the singularity movement and all that. In fact, if we look uh, a little bit deeply under the hood, uh, we have been trained to work on dashboards and observations and all the... So even like an aircraft pilot, for example, right? Like a plane going from uh, New York to Heathrow, London. Actually, pilot's job is just for seven minutes. They don't touch any of the equipment today more than seven minutes. Out of this eight-hour flights, it's just seven minutes. Uh, humans have to touch uh, any of the equipment. So everything is all autonomous. And even if when it's not autonomous, it's based on some gauges and dials and uh, sensors that, hey, level is this, level is that. So humans just act in reaction mode based on what is observed, what is presented on those dashboard screens. So in, in reality, if we look deeper, uh, machines are already masters and humans are actually the slaves uh, uh, taking actions yeah. based on those results. Well, and, you know, we've seen the uh, emergence of uh, data lakes and uh, large big data uh, where, you know, IoT devices have been collecting data. And one of the biggest problems is probably, I'd say maybe 20% is even being analyzed or interpreted to see what the data is saying or, or even approach to analyzing data. It's just being collected. And so for that reason, you know, deep learning's become popular. But I see a new movement where, you know, you have uh, IoT devices gathering information, sensors, actuators uh, operating and uh, you have reinforced learning combined with deep learning gathering all this information making decisions and so uh, you don't have this latency of a data lake and then having to bring in a data scientist to analyze the data lake and then having tableau visualization to help explain it you could have the ai uh, interpreting it and uh, and uh, bringing the important things to people's attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you are familiar with uh, the concept of fog computing. I mean, we have been working uh, for the last four or five years on, on that concept. So similar to cloud computing, uh, fog computing is just like fog. It's closer to the ground. Uh, so it was more of a paradigm for distributed computing, specifically designed for the IoT landscape. So typically what happens to your point earlier is capture the data, then store the data in the cloud, and then later on analyze the data. That's a typical sequence. What FOC computing does, it's basically it reverses the last two steps. So capture the data, analyze the data first on the edge, on the intermittent points between the device and the cloud, and then store only what's meaningful uh, in the cloud. Don't just keep on dumping the data in the cloud. So as an example, some temperature sensor is measuring uh, temperature every second. So, and if it's uh, reading 65 degrees, I mean, you don't have to just say, have 100,000 records of like 65 degrees or 64.8 and 65.2 and all that, like narrow range. It's, it's useless to store that data. Instead, what should be done is process the data on the edge. And when the delta is beyond certain threshold, it's more than certain threshold, only then uh, set and store those records in the cloud that, hey, at so-and-so time, there was an exception. Uh, the threshold of the delta increased by so, and this is the temperature. So 
make uh, results more meaningful make data more meaningful by pre analyzing right at the point of the origin or as soon as possible after that before even it reaches to the cloud so that's the whole notion and paradigm of uh, fog computing and we had proposed a bunch of interesting standards and use cases and scenarios uh, not only from a latency perspective so latency is definitely one thing volume is another thing cloud should not be overburdened with the volume and also the basically how efficient and effective uh, the price wise the cost wise resource wise what is the resource overhead for processing and storing that data if we can leverage the whole distributed mechanism of iot devices spread throughout the world or some intermittent aggregation points or higher level points before even it reaches to the cloud that's more efficient way of capturing processing and acting on the whole uh, massive iot data i uh, just wanted you know we're about out of time but i wanted to uh, switch and and uh, talk about your uh, future strategic planning so you've identified and you you played an active role in identifying that iot is uh, going to be a big uh, factor uh, that data collected at the iot is going to be super valuable because it's going to be real time data it will affect uh, how businesses operate make decisions uh, more decisions will be based on data tell me what your future strategic plans are i mean uh, data as they popularly call data is the new oil right so it's a very commonly used term these days so everything is data driven so more and more data driven decisions when they are going to change the the face of human life uh, whether we like it or not i mean that digital transformation is indeed happening as we speak so from a voice perspective yes we are kind of in the automation side but there's lots of other automation which is happening and that is data driven uh, the additional uh, factors of convenience which is coming in the play that's also data driven and eventually previously they used to say like blue collar jobs were taken away by this machines and automation uh, in the future they are saying even the white collar jobs uh, coding algorithms even that those jobs can be performed by massively data powered ai systems so even those jobs are going to go away so hand based jobs gone to machines even head based jobs are gone to machine going to go away to machines ai power system so what humans should focus on more the emotional the heart based jobs uh, even that is also in danger based on the massively data power system but that is still a very very strong point for humans to focus on uh, so the creative arts and those kind of industries are going to flourish but what can be automated will be eventually automated that's interesting you just talked about the arts i was watching uh how some of the ai are are uh you're creating images from story narratives so you have natural language and it's now translating that natural language into images uh you could give it uh, microsoft has their software where you uh have it give descriptions of different types of birds and it generates a uh image of a bird uh you have deep fakes where uh you you could talk one way and the machine will uh interpret it and translate it to another face and action mm-hmm. uh i think you know even entertainment's moving this way where you could have uh ai characters interacting dynamically uh like a game and producing uh, uh game like uh uh movies you know in the digital world so you know maybe the we do create the ideas uh we provide the resources and then the 
the machines are going to be playing more of a, a impact. They're, they're already in the in the gaming world. They're they're finding big jumps in the in the AI assisting them and taking stuff that would take maybe a whole day now reducing down to a few minutes. So like you were saying, we, we won't have to work as hard. We'll get more done. Uh, maybe and a lot more interaction with the machine. Definitely. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, recently in the last few days, Google announced that like they found a real world use case power of quantum computing, uh, the real business case. So what computations could take with the fastest supercomputer on the earth today, uh, what could take 10,000 years, uh, the quantum computers were able to finish that same job in three minutes or so. So what can take like tens of thousands of years with the most powerful traditional supercomputers that can be achieved in like three minutes. So, I mean, the whole thing is really massive. It's uh, unfathomable, uh, frankly speaking. And right now, I don't think even know, anybody knows what the future is going to be 10 years down the road. Because if we look back, just like 10 years back, uh, none of the technologies that we see today were even existing. So, all the app stores and uh, the Snapchats and Instagrams of the world and Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and nothing, nothing was existing just 10 years back. So same way, 